chapter four part two of the quintessence of ibsenism by george bernard shaw this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine chapter four the autobiographical anti-idealist extravaganzas part two emperor and galilean eighteen seventy three when ibsen by merely giving the rein to the creative impulse of his poetic nature had produced brand and pear gint he was nearly forty his will in setting his imagination to work had produced a tough puzzle for his intellect in no case does the difference between the will and the intellect come out more clearly than in that of the poet save only that of the lover had ibsen died in eighteen sixty seven he like many another great poet would have gone to his grave without having ever rationally understood his own meaning nay if in that year an intellectual expert a commentator as we call him having read brand had put forward the explanation which ibsen himself must have arrived at before he constructed ghosts and the wild duck he would perhaps have repudiated it with as much disgust as a maiden would feel if any one were prosaic enough to give her the physiological explanation of her dreams of meeting a fairy prince only simpletons go to the creative artist presuming that he must be able to answer there what does this obscure passage mean that is the very question the poet's own intellect which had no part in the conception of the poem may be asking him and this curiosity of the intellect this restless life in it which differentiates it from dead machinery and troubles our lesser artists but little is one of the marks of the greater sort shakespeare in hamlet made a drama of the self-questioning that came upon him when his intellect rose up in alarm as well it might against the vulgar optimism of his henry v and yet could mend it to no better purpose than by the equally vulgar pessimism of troilus and cressida dante took pains to understand himself so did goethe richard wagner one of the greatest poets of our own day has left us as many volumes of criticism of art and life as he has left musical scores and he has expressly described how the keen intellectual activity he brought to the analysis of his music dramas was in abeyance during their creation just so do we find ibsen after composing his two great dramatic poems entering on a struggle to become intellectually conscious of what he had done we have seen that with shakespeare such an effort became itself creative and produced a drama of questioning with ibsen the same thing occurred he harked back to an abandoned project of his and wrote two huge dramas on the subject of the apostasy of the emperor julian in this work we find him at first preoccupied with a piece of old-fashioned free thinking the dilemma that moral responsibility presupposes free will and that free will sets man above god cain who slew because he willed willed because he must and must have willed to slay because he was himself comes upon the stage to claim that murder is fertile and death the ground of life though not having read weissman on death as a method of evolution he cannot say what is the ground of death judas asks whether when the master chose him he chose foreknowingly this part of the drama has no very deep significance it is easy to invent conundrums which dogmatic evangelicalism cannot answer and no doubt 
whilst it was still a nine days wonder that evangelicalism could not solve all enigmas such inventions seem something much deeper than the mere intellectual chess-play which it is seen to be now that the nine days are past in his occasional weakness for such conundrums and later on in his harping on the hereditary transmission of disease we see ibsen's active intellect busy not only with the problems peculiar to his own plays but with the fatalism and pessimism of the middle of the nineteenth century when the typical advanced culture was attainable by reading strauss's leben jesu the popularizations of helmholtz and darwin by tyndall and huxley and george eliot's novels vainly protested against by ruskin as peopled with the sweepings of a pentonville omnibus the traces of this period in ibsen's writings show how well he knew the crushing weight with which the sordid cares of the ordinary struggle for money and respectability fell on the world when the romance of the creeds was discredited and progress seemed for the moment to mean not the growth of the spirit of man but an effect of the survival of the fittest brought about by the destruction of the unfit all the most frightful examples of this systematic destruction being thrust into the utmost prominence by those who were fighting the church with mill's favourite dialectical weapon the incompatibility of divine omnipotence with divine benevolence his plays are full of an overwhelming sense of the necessity for rousing ourselves into self-assertion against this numbing fatalism and yet he certainly had not at this time freed his intellect from an acceptance of its scientific validity as our samuel butler did though butler was more like ibsen than any man in europe having the same great hoaxing humour the same grip of spiritual realities behind material facts the same toughness of character holding him unshaken against the world butler revelled in darwinism for six weeks and then grasping the whole scope and the whole horror of it warned us we did not listen until we had revelled for half a century that darwin had banished mind from the universe meaning from evolution ibsen belonging to an earlier generation and intellectually nursed on northern romance and mysticism rather than on the merely industrious and prosaic science of the interval between the discovery of evolution at the end of the eighteenth century and the discovery and overrating of natural selection as a method of evolution in the middle of the nineteenth was when darwin arrived past the age at which natural selection could have swept him away as it swept butler and his contemporaries but like them he seems to have welcomed it for the mortal blow it dealt to the current travesties of christianity which were really only reductions of the relations between man and god to the basis of the prevalent commercialism showing how god may be cheated and how salvation can be got for nothing through the blood of christ by sweaters adulterators quacks sharks and hypocrites also how god though the most dangerously capricious and short-tempered of anarchists is also the most sentimental of dupes it is against this conception of god as a sentimental dupe that brand rages ibsen evidently regarded the brimstone conception the almighty fiend of shelley is not worth his powder and shot partly no doubt because he knew that the almighty fiend's votaries would never read or understand his works and partly because the class he addressed the cultured class had thrown off that superstition and were busy with the sentimental religion of love in which we are still wallowing 
and which only substitutes twaddle for terror at first sight this may seem an improvement but it is no defence against that fear of man which is so much more mischievous than the fear of god the cruelty of natural selection was a powerful antidote to such sentimentalism and ibsen who was perhaps no expert in recent theories of evolution was quite ready to rub it in uncritically for the sake of its value as a tonic indeed as a fearless observer of the cruelty of nature he was quite independent of darwin what we find in his works is an unmistakable darwinian atmosphere but not the actual darwinian discoveries and technical theory if natural selection the gloomiest and most formidable of the castles of giant despair had stopped him he would no doubt like butler have set himself deliberately to play greatheart and reduce it but his genius pushed him past it and left it to be demolished philosophically by butler and practically by the mere march of the working class which by its freedom from the economic bias of the middle classes has escaped their characteristic illusions and solved many of the enigmas they found insoluble because they did not wish to have them solved for instance according to the theory of natural selection progress can take place only through an increase in the severity of the material conditions of existence and as the working classes were quite determined that progress should consist of just the opposite they had no difficulty in seeing that it generally does occur in that way whereas the middle class wished on the contrary to be convinced that the poverty of the working classes and all the hideous evils attending it were inevitable conditions of progress and that every penny in the pound on the rates spent in social amelioration and every attempt on the part of the workers to raise their wages by trade unionism or otherwise were vain defiances of biologic and economic science how far ibsen was definitely conscious of all this is doubtful but one of his most famous utterances pointed to the working class and the women as the great emancipators his prophetic belief in the spontaneous growth of the will made him ameliorist without reference to the operation of natural selection but his impression of the light thrown by physical and biological science on the facts of life seems to have been the gloomy one of the middle of the nineteenth century external nature often plays her most ruthless and destructive part in his works which have an extraordinary fascination for the pessimists of that period in spite of the incompatibility of his individualism with that mechanical utilitarian ethic of theirs which treats man as the sport of every circumstance and ignores his will altogether another inessential but very prominent feature in ibsen's dramas will be understood easily by any one who has observed how a change of religious faith intensifies our concern about our own salvation an ideal pious or secular is practically used as a standard of conduct and whilst it remains unquestioned the simple rule of right is to conform to it in the theological stage when the bible is accepted as the revelation of god's will the pious man when in doubt as to whether he is acting rightly or wrongly quiets his misgivings by searching the scripture until he finds a text which endorses his action Footnote as such misgivings seldom arise except when the conscience revolts against the contemplated action an appeal to scripture to justify a point of conduct is generally found in practice to be an attempt to excuse a crime the rationalist for whom the bible has no authority brings his conduct to such tests as asking himself after kant how it would be if everyone did as he proposes to do 
or by calculating the effect of his action on the greatest happiness of the greatest number or by judging whether the liberty of action he is claiming infringes the equal liberty of others etc etc most men are ingenious enough to pass examinations of this kind successfully in respect to everything they really want to do but in periods of transition as for instance when faith in the infallibility of the bible is shattered and faith in that of reason not yet perfected men's uncertainty as to the rightness and wrongness of their actions keeps them in a continual perplexity amid which casuistry seems the most important branch of intellectual activity life as depicted by ibsen is very full of it we find the great double drama of emperor and galilean occupied at first with julian's case regarded as a case of conscience it is compared in the manner already described with the cases of cain and judas the three men being introduced as cornerstones under the wrath of necessity great freedmen under necessity and so forth the qualms of julian are theatrically effective in producing the most exciting suspense as to whether he will dare to choose between christ and the imperial purple but the mere exhibition of a man struggling between his ambition and his creed belongs to a phase of intellectual interest which ibsen had passed even before the production of brand when he wrote his kongs emnerne the pretenders emperor and galilean might have been appropriately if prosaically named the mistake of maximus the mystic it is maximus who forces the choice on julian not as between ambition and principle between paganism and christianity between the old beauty that is no longer beautiful and the new truth that is no longer true but between christ and julian himself maximus knows that there is no going back to the first empire of pagan sensualism the second empire christian or self-abnegatory idealism is already rotten at heart the third empire is what he looks for the empire of man asserting the eternal validity of his own will he who can see that not on olympus not nailed to the cross but in himself is god he is the man to build brand's bridge between the flesh and the spirit establishing this third empire in which the spirit shall not be unknown nor the flesh starved nor the will tortured and baffled thus throughout the first part of the double drama we have julian prompted step by step to the stupendous conviction that he no less than the galilean is god his resolution to seize the throne is expressed in his interruption of the lord's prayer which he hears intoned by worshippers in church as he wrestles in the gloom of the catacombs with his own fears and the entreaties and threats of his soldiers urging him to take the final decisive step at the cue lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil he rushes to the church with his soldiers exclaiming for mine is the kingdom yet he halts on the threshold dazzled by the light as his follower sallust points the declaration by adding and the power and the glory once on the throne julian becomes a mere pedant tyrant trying to revive paganism mechanically by cruel enforcement of external conformity to its rights in his moments of exaltation he half grasps the meaning of maximus only to relapse presently and pervert it into a grotesque mixture of superstition and monstrous vanity we have him making such speeches as this worthy of Per gint at his most ludicrous has not plato long ago enunciated the truth that only a god can rule over men what did he mean by that saying answer me what did he mean far be it from me to assert that plato incomparable sage though he was 
had any individual even the greatest in his prophetic eye etc in this frame of mind christ appears to him not as the prototype of himself as maximus would have him feel but as a rival god over whom he must prevail at all costs it galls him to think that the galilean still reigns in the hearts of men whilst the emperor can only extort lip honour from them by brute force for in his wildest excesses of egotism he never so loses his saving sense of the realities of things as to mistake the trophies of persecution for the fruits of faith tell me who shall conquer he demands of maximus the emperor or the galilean both the emperor and the galilean shall succumb says maximus whether in our time or in hundreds of years i know not but so it shall be when the right man comes who is the right man says julian he who shall swallow up both emperor and galilean replies the seer footnote or as we should now say the superman End footnote. both shall succumb but you shall not therefore perish does not the child succumb in the youth and the youth in the man yet neither child nor youth perishes you know i have never approved of your policy as emperor you have tried to make the youth a child again the empire of the flesh is fallen a prey to the empire of the spirit but the empire of the spirit is not final any more than the youth is you have tried to hinder the youth from growing from becoming a man o oh, fool who have drawn your sword against that which is to be against the third empire in which the twin-natured shall reign for him the jews have a name they call him messiah and are waiting for him still julian stumbles on the threshold of the idea without entering into it he is galled out of all comprehension by the rivalry of the galilean and asks despairingly who shall break his power then maximus drives the lesson home Quote, maximus is it not written thou shalt have none other gods but me julian yes 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 maximus the seer of nazareth did not preach this god or that he said god is i i am god julian and that is what makes the emperor powerless the third empire the messiah not the jews messiah but the messiah of the two empires the spirit and the world maximus the god emperor julian the emperor god maximus logos in pan pan in logos julian how is he begotten maximus he is self-begotten in the man who wills End quote. but it is of no use maximus's idea is a synthesis of relations in which not only is christ god in exactly the same sense as that in which julian is god but julian is christ as well the persistence of julian's jealousy of the galilean shows that he has not comprehended the synthesis at all but only seized on that part of it which flatters his own egotism and since this part is only valid as a constituent of the synthesis and has no reality when isolated from it it cannot by itself convince julian in vain does maximus repeat his lesson in every sort of parable and in such pregnant questions as how do you know julian that you were not in him whom you now persecute he can only wreak him to utter commands to the winds and to exclaim in the excitement of burning his fleet on the borders of persia the third empire is here maximus i feel that the messiah of the earth lives within me the spirit has become flesh and the flesh spirit all creation lies within my will and power more than the fleet is burning 
in that glowing swirling pyre the crucified galilean is burning to ashes and the earthly emperor is burning with the galilean but from the ashes shall arise phoenix-like the god of earth and the emperor of the spirit in one in one in one at which point he is informed that a persian refugee whose information has emboldened him to burn his ships has fled from the camp and is a manifest spy from that moment he is a broken man in his next and last emergency when the persians fall upon his camp his first desperate exclamation is a vow to sacrifice to the gods to what gods o fool cries maximus where are they and what are they i will sacrifice to this god and that god i will sacrifice to many he answers desperately one or other must surely hear me i must call on something without me and above me a flash of lightning seems to him a response from above and with this encouragement he throws himself into the fight clinging like macbeth to an ambiguous oracle which leads him to suppose that only in the phrygian regions need he fear defeat he imagines he sees the nazarene in the ranks of the enemy and in fighting madly to reach him he is struck down in the name of christ by one of his own soldiers then his one christian general jovian calls on his believing brethren to give caesar what is caesar's declaring that the heavens are open and the angels coming to the rescue with their swords of fire he rallies the galileans of whom julian has made slave soldiers the pagan free legions crying out that the god of the galileans is on the roman side and that he is the strongest follow jovian as he charges the enemy who fly in all directions whilst julian sinking back from a vain effort to rise exclaims thou hast conquered o galilean julian dies quietly in his tent averring in reply to a christian friend's inquiry that he has nothing to repent of the power which circumstances placed in my hands he says and which is an emanation of divinity i am conscious of having used to the best of my skill i have never wittingly wronged any one if some should think that i have not fulfilled all expectations they should in justice reflect that there is a mysterious power outside us which in a great measure governs the issue of human undertakings he still does not see eye to eye with maximus though there is a flash of insight in his remark to him when he learns that the village where he fell is called the phrygian region that the world will has laid an ambush for him it was something for julian to have seen that the power which he found stronger than his individual will was itself will but inasmuch as he conceived it not as the whole of which his will was but a part but as a rival will he was not the man to found the third empire he had felt the godhead in himself but not in others being only able to say with half conviction the kingdom of heaven is within me he had been utterly vanquished by the galilean who had been able to say the kingdom of heaven is within you but he was on the way to that full truth a man cannot believe in others until he believes in himself for his conviction of the equal worth of his fellows must be filled by the overflow of his conviction of his own worth against the spurious christianity of asceticism starving that indispensable prior conviction julian rightly rebelled and maximus rightly incited him to rebel but maximus could not fill the prior conviction even to fullness much less to overflowing for the third empire was not yet and is not yet however the tyrant dies with a peaceful conscience and maximus is able to tell the priest at the bedside that the world will will answer for julian's soul 
what troubles the mystic is his having misled julian by encouraging him to bring upon himself the fate of cain and judas as water can be boiled by fire man can be prompted and stimulated from without to assert his individuality but just as no boiling can fill a half-empty well no external stimulus can enlarge the spirit of man to the point at which he can self-beget the emperor god in himself by willing at that point to will is to have to will and it is with these words on his lips that maximus leaves the stage still sure that the third empire is to come it is not necessary to translate the scheme of emperor and galilean into terms of the antithesis between idealism and realism julian in this respect is a reincarnation of per gint all the difference is that the subject which was instinctively projected in the earlier poem is intellectually constructed in the later history julian plus maximus the mystic being per plus one who understands him better than ibsen did when he created him the interest for us of ibsen's interpretation of original christianity is obvious the deepest sayings recorded in the gospels are now nothing but eccentric paradoxes to most of those who reject the supernatural view of christ's divinity those who accept that view often consider that such acceptance absolves them from attaching any sensible meaning to his words at all and so might as well pin their faith to a stock or stone of these attitudes the first is superficial and the second stupid ibsen's interpretation whatever may be its vitality will certainly hold the field long after the current crossianity as it has been aptly called becomes unthinkable end of chapter four recording by expatriate in bangor maine